This morning I'm starting with a question. Whose catchphrase was, I am the greatest? Whose catchphrase was, I am the greatest? That's right, it was Muhammad Ali, I hear you see. Muhammad Ali, the world-famous boxer who would frequently say of himself, I am the greatest. In fact, he released a spoken world album by the same title in 1963, I am the greatest. And the truth is that Muhammad Ali probably was the world's greatest heavyweight boxer in the recent era. Ali thrived in the spotlight, and he was one of those who managed to uh, look after his public reputation in his own terms, which is something few are actually able to do. But on the odd occasion, Muhammad Ali was brought down a peg or two. Perhaps you've heard of the humorous story of what happened to Muhammad Ali when he boarded a plane and was about to take off. When the stewardess came round and noticed that his uh, seatbelt was unfastened, uh, she asked him, please, could you you fasten it? Superman, don't need no seatbelt, Ali replied. Superman, don't need no airplane either, retorted the quick-witted stewardess. (laughs) You see, those who claim greatness need to be wary Because the claim of Jesus in today's passage is that people who build their status on things the world considers important are destined to stumble and fall. That's what the word sin, which occurs a number of times in today's passage, means. According to Jesus, if you judge the worth of a person by their worldly status, then it's inevitable you'll fall into sin. And as we'll see later, the consequences of such an attitude are extremely serious. According to Jesus, it's the choice between heaven or hell. So now I've grabbed your attention. We're going to look at today's passage from Matthew's Gospel under two main headings. Status and stumbling. So if you've closed your Bibles, please can you open them back up again to page 985 so you can track through with me. First heading, status. Matthew's Gospel is divided into five blocks of uh, teaching chunks by Jesus. And in chapter 18, one of these teaching blocks begins in response to a question that the disciples ask Jesus. Who then, Jesus, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Ever since chapter 16, when Jesus spoke up, uh, when, uh, sorry, Peter spoke up on behalf of the disciples to declare that Jesus was the Messiah which was then followed by Jesus telling them that the Messiah's role was to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross, the disciples have been somewhat perplexed. The disciples still viewed a person's status through the worldly lens of power and prestige. If Jesus truly was king of the Jews, and with each passing day the disciples were beginning to suspect more and more that this was the case, they wanted to know where they ranked in the pecking order under him. So before Jesus fulfills his promise to Peter in chapter 16 to hand over the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he knows he must first teach his disciples the principles by which the kingdom of heaven operates and how people are to relate to one another within it. Anybody who can't operate according to the principles Jesus lays down is not to be allowed in. 
course, this also has implications for us in the church. How should we relate one another of the church of which Jesus is the head? Because the church is called to foreshadow the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's part of our mission. So in response to the disciples' question, who is the greatest? In verse 2 to 5, Jesus takes the opportunity to tackle this issue of status. See, presently disciples connect greatness with worldly status. So they're impressed by people with fancy clothes, with first century PhDs who hold down good jobs, who seem to have it all together. And they think, wow, these people have got influence. They're beautiful. They're important. Surely they're the type of people that Jesus would want in. Disciples play the people comparison game, judging a person's worthiness to enter the kingdom of heaven according to their attractiveness and their achievements. People seen to be on the upwardly mobile ladder of success are to be treated with honour and respect, whereas nobodies are inconsequential and therefore ignored, possibly even denied access. And because this is how Jesus' disciples view the world, they find themselves experiencing a degree of status anxiety. They're left feeling insecure. How do I fit into all this, Jesus? They wonder about their own rank and position on God's heavenly podium of greatness. It's interesting that in his 2004 book, Status Anxiety, philosopher Alan de Botton says, Anxiety is the handmaiden of contemporary ambition. I'll say that again so you can digest it. Anxiety is the handmaiden of contemporary ambition. I'm sure he's right. If we're always looking around to compare our status against others, then it's inevitable we'll become more anxious as we question our own relative worth. But as we see from the question that the disciples asked Jesus, this is no modern thing. Anxiety over our status is part of our human condition. That's why Jesus' radical reordering of the kingdom of heaven is timeless in nature, and it's something we all need to hear. So to reorder the disciples' way of thinking, Jesus needs to undergo, uh, teach them to undergo a complete paradigm shift. And to do this, Jesus chooses a highly visual teaching aid. Jesus answers the disciples' question by calling over a little child to come and stand in their midst. Now you need to know that in the first century Palestine, children had no status at all. In our culture, we highly value children, don't we? We dote on them. It wasn't like that back then. Back then, a child was insignificant, dependent, and vulnerable. They had no status until they became strong enough to work for themselves. A child was the complete opposite of the way Muhammad Ali spoke about himself in his prime. Yet Jesus says to his disciples, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
the disciples are to reject all worldly thoughts of a podium placement in the kingdom of heaven because such an attitude will disqualify them from even getting in. Just like an Olympian who's disqualified before an event if they're caught taking drugs. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like this little child. You must lay down your need for worldly status. Again, Alan de Botton says, only as we mature does affection begin to depend on achievement. In other words, he's saying, only as we grow older do we believe our right to be loved is dependent on our worldly achievements. But little children don't think this way. Little children loved being loved without feeling the need to earn it. There will be nobody in the kingdom of heaven who says, I deserve to be here. I've worked hard. I'm worth it. Quite the opposite. According to the kingdom of heaven teaching that Jesus gives in verse 4, it's those who are willing to take the lowliest position according to worldly definitions who Jesus calls the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus' message remains countercultural today. Some might even call it offensive. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus died for us whilst we were still powerless sinners. Some of you might know the words to the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus confers a new status on the disciples that we don't deserve and cannot earn through our own merit. This status is that of being a child of God. Do you remember our verse for the year, the previous year? See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Well, interestingly, the next verse goes on. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you see how and why the operating principles of this world are in opposition to the kingdom of heaven rules that Jesus lays down? They do not meet in the middle. So if we measure our status through the eyes of the world, the security we feel on identity will always be based on how we rate ourselves against those around us. This means we have no fixed anchor to build our status and security on. We'll move at various times between pride or despair, depending on how we perform. But the glory of the gospel is that by anchoring ourselves to the solid rock of knowing that we are children deeply loved by God, then we're free to live our lives as we're meant to live them, 
without pretense or hypocrisy, to be who God created us to be, not worrying about what others think. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, have you let the truth that you're a child deeply loved by God sink in? Have you let God's love permeate to the depths of your soul? Will you let this knowledge transform the way you think? If you're here this morning just exploring the Christian faith, how do you currently rate your status? How does this affect your identity? And for all of us, how would living more in accordance with the kingdom of heaven principles change the way we treat others? Because it's fascinating the way that Jesus applies his teaching in verse 5. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And Jesus is not just referring to welcoming a literal child like the one before him. But more generally to someone who displays the same characteristics as that child. Someone the world views of low status. Someone who acknowledges their lowliness. Someone who is dependent on the goodness of others who hold authority over them. Jesus says, if you welcome such a person in his name, it is like welcoming Jesus himself. If, because of your belief in Jesus, you welcome those the world considers weak or even destitute, then you're having a highly privileged encounter in the eyes of God. Let me ground this for us a little bit more. Maybe you've experienced how it feels to talk to someone who you know is distracted, not really listening to you, because they seem to be looking around for a higher profile option. It doesn't make you feel good, does it? And huge apologies if this has ever been your experience of talking with me. Remember, I stand up here as one imperfect person speaking to you, imperfect people. That's why we're covering forgiveness next week. But if we truly grasp Jesus' teaching, it will help us to be fully present with those we're communicating with. We'll take great delight in talking to all sorts of people, regardless of their worldly status. It will stop us asking the worldly question, what's in this conversation for me? Now we must move on to my second heading, stumbling. The word sin occurs four times in verses 6 to 9. And as mentioned before, it kind of means to stumble, to fall into sin. So firstly, I want you to see that the world we live in is patterned to stumble. Verse 7, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. Jesus is saying that things that cause people to stumble are inevitable. This takes me right back to the book of Genesis and the fall of Adam and Eve. Why is that? Well, do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve weren't happy with their status under God. 
They wanted to rule over their own life. They wanted to be like God, to have the same status as God. So in disobedience, they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to take what was not rightfully theirs. And in doing so, they attempted to rank themselves on a par with God. As a consequence, they were cast out of God's presence. The whole world fell under the consequence of their sin. Since that moment, humanity's relationship with God has been strained. We live in a world which groans under the consequences of being separated from the presence of God. Separated from the source of all love. This is why the world is so consumed with status. Everyone is scrambling around, searching for affirmation from others which can never compare with the love of God. And to me, this is a good definition of hell. Longing for love which is unobtainable. Unobtainable, that is, unless you seek it through a restored relationship with God. Yet out of blind pride, you you refuse to come to Jesus for help. So in our efforts to fill this affirmation gap, we find ourselves needing to perform better than those we're surrounded by. And only when we're crowned the greatest will we feel affirmed by others' praise. But even when we achieve, it's a transitory pleasure. It's not long before someone even younger and more talented, more ambitious, comes along and knocks us off our perch. And the world idolizes them instead. This constant striving, this hamster wheel of striving, of trying to be better than others. Why do we do it? True love and affirmation can never be realized outside the loving arms of God. Such an attitude can only lead to despair. A restless place where there is no peace for the soul. Hell. So this world is patterned to stumble. You know, you only need to go into a newsagent's and try and buy a, a magazine for your young child. And know that you daren't look any higher than the middle shelf. It breaks my heart. What happens when my young daughters look up? Jesus says such things must come in a world that has rejected God. But woe to the person through whom they come. Just as my heart breaks, Jesus' heart is broken first. Woe is an expression of Jesus' seriousness in putting things right. That's why he calls each person, including his disciples, to account for their ways. I want you to see now how the child of no status is removed from the center of Jesus' attention and in the child's place, under the spotlight of God, he places you and me. Now we're the center of Jesus' gaze. Yes, in verses 6 to 9... 
Jesus using hyperbole, strong language to emphasize his point. But that's because we need to hear these spiritual truths, hard-hitting even though they are. So secondly, in verse 6, Jesus tells us to avoid causing others to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to sin, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Think about that child of no status for a moment. Their security and trust is completely in Jesus. Their hope and their dependence is completely on God. If someone comes along and uses their worldly status and power to manipulate them, to cause this believer to fall into sin, then Jesus is saying death would be the better for that person than the final verdict of God. I acknowledge that this is frightening stuff. But there's no running away from the holiness of God. This raises the stakes of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. It removes any sense that we can play at humility at church on Sundays, yet yet trample on those we're surrounded by during the rest of the week. Some of you have been studying Richard Foster's celebration of discipline in your small groups. In his chapter on submission, he reminds us that Jesus not only died the cross death, but he lived the cross life. To be a follower of Jesus is a divine and holy calling to lay down our status in order to build disciples who are younger than us up in faith. Consider now for a moment... How do you role model your faith? Finally, in verses 8 to 9, Jesus wants you to avoid tripping yourself up. Jesus is seriously concerned for the welfare of the disciples. He's seriously concerned with love for you. This world mistakenly thinks as love as being an overriding force for tolerance. Tolerance which never challenges. Tolerance that lets anything go. In my book, such tolerance is not love. It's neglect. Pretending sin doesn't matter demonstrates a lack of concern. That's why Jesus takes the opposite approach. He confronts us with the consequences of our sin. Jesus says it would be better to enter life impoverished without hands, feet or eyes than continue to sin and face the reality of hell. The words Jesus uses for hell here is Gehenna. This was the place where unfaithful Israelites of long ago sacrificed their children in fire to foreign gods. And in Jesus' day, Gehenna was also the place where Jerusalem's rubbish was burnt. Gehenna was an accursed, God-forsaken place. And Jesus sees it as a fitting illustration of hell. Hell is the world in free fall, spiraling eternally out of control. 
without the loving presence of God to keep it in check. That's why Jesus calls those who follow him to make a radical response. We are to know and demonstrate that God is still present with us in this place. So our hands symbolize our actions. We must act carefully in all we do. Our feet symbolize the place where we stand. We must be careful not to walk into temptation's way. Our eyes symbolize our desires. Those things we long to see. Those things we long for. So we need to be wary of looking at others with a sense of jealous envy. Yet I know, and you know, that living in this world counterculturally seems like an impossible task. And the truth is, despite our genuine and best efforts, it is impossible to live without at various times stumbling into sin. That's why we don't trust in our own merits before God. We trust in Jesus Christ, who lived and died in order to pay the price that our sin deserved. Jesus, who despite being part of the eternal Godhead, set aside his status, entering the world to become like you and me. Out of love, Jesus made the greatest sacrifice in order to pick us back up when we fall. When we stumble, we remember all that Jesus has done for us. This gives us the courage to get back on our feet and try and emulate him. To live out kingdom of heaven principles in this world, knowing our eternal status is secure. We are children of God, greatly loved.